Are you tired of Lent yet? <laughs> my Lent madness bracket is busted. My Lenten disciplines are hanging on by a thread. My quads and my hamstrings are tight from all this kneeling. Of course, there's more to Lent than what we make of it. Several of you, perhaps because you feel the same exhaustion I feel, have reminded me that you don't have to pick a penitential practice in order to experience the value of this Lenten season. In fact, for some of us, it's a desolate place of struggle that finds us rather than the other way around. Several years ago, a bishop told me that he is suspicious of people who enjoy Lent. <laughs> he was talking about me, of course. He had seen how much I love these 40 days of self-imposed misery, and he offered those words as an important counterbalance, a reminder to me that my ability to choose a season of voluntary hunger and self-prescribed longing is a sign of considerable privilege. Not everybody has that choice. There is nothing holy about going to bed hungry each night if you don't even have enough cornmeal to make a griddle cake for you and your child. But for others of us, there is a different hunger, a nagging, crippling hunger that follows us day after day, the hunger to know that we are beloved of God. Too often, religious leaders like me have singled us out as sinners in need of repentance, and not because we carry our share of that universal brokenness that the whole world bears until God can transform it, but instead that particular individual brokenness that individuals bear when they have not lived up to the imposed expectations of their spiritual leaders. Jesus has something to say to leaders like that, those who seem to take pleasure when others feel bad about themselves. Woe to you, Jesus warns them. Woe to you, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faith. But even though Jesus offers those words of correction, still, those of us who have come to this church from another tradition that deals primarily with guilt and shame, when we hear that Lenten call each year to lament our sins and acknowledge our wretchedness, no matter how grace-filled the church intends that call to be, it strikes at an old wound, reopening painful experiences of spiritual abuse. So perhaps we should just skip Lent altogether and jump straight to the end. Maybe what the world needs most is less wilderness and more resurrection. Someone I only know through social media shared a post that rightly and pointedly criticizes the institutional imperial church for choosing a period of self-denial rather than nurturing a season of human flourishing. The author of the original post, Susan Thistlethwaite of Chicago Theological Seminary, asks, why isn't Lent observed? by marching into the centers of power, 
overturning some tables, healing people, and arguing with authorities, which is what Jesus, of course, did. The answer that Thistlethwaite identifies is Constantine, which is shorthand for the church's continuing love affair with power. The problem, though, is that until we examine our own love affair with power, any tables we rush in to turn over in the name of Jesus, well, we will only reset them in ways that serve our needs instead of the needs of God's people, the needs of God's reign on the earth. Jesus seems to have anticipated this intrinsic problem warning us in today's gospel lesson, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the reign of God without being born from above, without being born again. Those might be Jesus's words, but is there anything more thoroughly unepiscopalian than language about being born again? We don't like talk like that. We're too prim and proper for that. I'd be willing to bet that we'd accept the great litany every Sunday in Lent if it meant we could avoid any talk about being born again. Even the NRSV, the language we read here in worship, which is perhaps the most Episcopal of translations, even it renders Jesus' criterion for seeing and entering God's majesty not as born again, but as born from above. That's how much we'd rather avoid it. But it turns out there's a funny little wordplay going on in the Greek text that makes it seem like Jesus might just be telling a joke at Nicodemus's expense and at our own. The word in question is anothen, which is a Greek word that means both again and from above, which if you'll allow me the indulgence of kind of being creative in your thinking, you might just might be able to see a connection between those two because of the way that we talk about starting again as if it were starting from the top. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born anothen, and Nicodemus responds, how can someone enter the mother's womb a second time? It's possible that Jesus chuckled just a little bit because what he was laying down, Nicodemus wasn't picking up. Nicodemus seems to be confusing a heavenly rebirth for a second earthly nativity. But I'm afraid that our aversion to that born-again language makes it hard for us to get what Jesus is saying as well. Despite our namesake, aren't we here at St. Paul's Episcopal Church a little skeptical of anyone who comes to us with a dramatic story of conversion? Don't we think of them as belonging to a particular brand of Christianity with which we'd rather not identify? Whenever I hear us using the term born-again Christian, it sounds to me like we use it with just a hint of derision in our voice, perhaps because we know the people who insist upon a born-again conversion experience usually look down at those of us who never had one as being somehow insufficiently Christian. But Jesus wasn't talking to evangelicals or fundamentalists when he told Nicodemus that no one can see the reign of God without, as Dr. Gaffney read in her own translation last night, without being birthed again. 
Jesus was talking to a dyed-in-the-wool, religious, elitist, just like us. We need to be birthed again, which is to say birthed from above, and we need to be birthed again just as much as Nicodemus. Think about how often we walk where he walked and ask the same questions of Jesus that he asked. We've heard about this Jesus. We recognize that the signs he is able to do shows us that there must be something good and godly about this rabbi. But when it's time for us to take our stand beside Jesus, I think our instinct is to lurk in the shadows, to walk quickly in the dim light, lest anyone confuse us for the kind of religious zealot we're more comfortable pointing our fingers at. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night when no one else would notice. But isn't our equivalent of that what we do on Sunday mornings when there's nothing out of place or unseemly about showing up at church? This is the safe time to be faithful. No one pays any attention when you walk through those doors on a Sunday morning. But what if they saw us looking for Jesus in the quorum court meeting? or in the booking room at the county jail, or standing in line at the polling place? What would they say about us if they heard us lifting our voice at a rally in Little Rock or a march in Washington? What would they think about us if we went all in for Jesus? What would they whisper about us if we started behaving like we were born again? We cannot follow Jesus into the majesty of God and do so half-heartedly. And if we're going to leave behind our attachment to this world and our love affair with the structures of power that are inextricably intertwined with our own lives, we must climb back into the womb of God and be birthed again, born not of the flesh of our earthly parents, but of the water and the spirit of our mother God. Jesus challenges our assumption that our primary identity comes from the world and our earthly families. Instead, Jesus asks us to believe that there is nothing more fundamental to who we are than our place and our participation in God's reign, God's family. And Jesus knows that we can never achieve that sense of identity, that full sense of belonging, of giving our whole selves over to God until we are born again, reborn in the waters of baptism and sometimes in the tears of repentance and restoration. We who belong to the institutional church have a rather unpleasant habit of rushing in and turning over all the tables so that we can put new tables in their place. But too often we do so without remembering the privilege we carry and without repenting of the power for which we lust. Think Christian anti-Semitism. Think Islamophobic crusades. Think transatlantic slave trade. Think settler colonialism. Think manifest destiny. Think marginalization of queer people. Think domination of women's bodies. In every case, Christians 
working in the name of Jesus, have pushed aside one example of embodied power in favor of one they find less threatening, more self-serving. And to them, it always feels like gospel work, but it's really just the kingdoms of this world operating in a Christian disguise. Now, there are plenty of tables of injustice and oppression in this world that desperately need turning over. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that in the resurrection, we see and we know that God will turn every single one of them upside down. But if that's going to be our work, if we're going to give ourselves to that vision for the world, if we are going to become ourselves vessels through which God's majesty comes, then we cannot afford to skip to the end. This Lenten journey of self-examination and repentance is essential because it's how we leave behind our attachment to this world. It's how we embrace the coming majesty of God. If we are going to be a part of God's reign, even we must be born again.